0: Welcome everybody to the third episode of the sweet spot podcast. I'm your host Jake Lebovich and I'm here with my boy and my co-host Mark Abramovitz. For any new listeners, what we do here on the sweet spot podcast is we discuss the sweet spot between the utilization of data and human decision making within baseball development and gameplay. Today we have a super cool episode on tap for you guys. We got a good buddy of mine, an ex-teammate of mine, and a really formidable coach in the industry. Mark, why don't you tell everyone who we got on tap for today's episode?
1: What's up, Jake? On today's episode, we're sitting down with Matt Ribesell, your former teammate. He's had a bunch of pit stops along the way in his coaching career at different D1 and D3 programs, and he's currently the assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at Franklin Marshall's baseball program. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Matt's career path. We're going to talk about the evolution of data in college baseball, We're going to focus on some key metrics that he focuses on when he's recruiting players. We're going to talk about the challenges of making decisions with minimal data when you only see players for a little bit at a showcase. We're going to talk about recruiting catchers specifically. We're going to talk about offense versus defense, velocity versus movement, both in recruiting and subsequently for coaching players. We're going to talk about discrepancies in data usage across divisions one, two, and three. And lastly, we're going to focus on how high school athletes can make themselves more recruitable and more attractive for college coaches. Well, we've got a lot of good topics to talk about, so let's do it. Without further ado, let's welcome
0: Matt Rebusell to the show. Welcome, brother.
2: Really appreciate you guys having me. Thanks for uh, getting down and talking about some recruiting.
0: So you know that feeling when you're at a party and two of your exes walk into the same room. So that's how I feel right now for all the listeners, right? I got Mark, who was my high school catcher, and I got Matt here, who was my college catcher. And now we're all just hanging out at a party talking baseball. So when I first met Matt back when we were both athletes at Muhlenberg College, he was our stud catcher. I mean, the guy was an unbelievable ball player our teammates always used to joke about him saying, if you blink during his at-bats, somehow he'd just be on second base already. And there was like a relay coming in from the gap. Obviously now, Matt, you're an assistant coach at FNM. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your baseball journey? You can start back from high school, go into some details about your stops along the way to where you are today.
2: Yeah, well, first off, thank you. I I appreciate that. I obviously missed out a ton, but um, yeah, it's uh, I'm glad that, you know, there's, There's a bunch of us from, you know, those teams that are still in the game in some capacity. So, you know, like I said, it's awesome that we can connect and talk a little bit today. So real quick, grew up in Paramus, New Jersey and played high school ball there. You know, always a public school guy through and through in in an area that was kind of uh, run by some of the parochial schools in the area who had a ton of success. But it was a lot of really great competition. From there, like you said, went on to Muhlenberg, loved my time there, met seven class years of amazing teammates and, you know, met coach gross who uh, we obviously both had and who was a huge mentor to me. And, you know, him and one of our assistants who there during my time there, Dave Anderson kind of helped propel me into coaching and kind of pulled me aside in the beginning of my senior year and said, Hey, you know, uh, uh, there's an opportunity for you here. I'm not sure how interested you would be, but I I need an assistant coach for this summer. Um, Give it some thought and then let me know. I think, you know, you might be cut out for it. And, Uh, That opportunity was in the Coastal Plains League and like a college summer ball opportunity um, back when the Savannah Bananas used to play in it. So you know we were, we were working with some you know really high level players from all all across college baseball, NAIA, Division One, Two, and Three, JUCO players. So I I think that kind of like broad experience of my first time. It was it truly was like an internship to coaching. Um, You know it wasn't the most glamorous, but it was so much fun and it's. Looking back, it's probably the closest experience to like a pro ball experience that I'll ever get with the road trips and playing literally six days a week. So, I, you know, I, I have those two, Coach Gross and uh, Coach Anderson, to thank a, a ton for that. And, you know, I'm still I'm really close with them today. And from there, you know, there's been a, a bunch of stops at a few different colleges, even one college twice. I started off going out to Western Pennsylvania at Allegheny College. You know, had a lot of fun out there. And I think one really cool thing about coaching is just that it brings you to so many different places, like actual locations. So I was kind of able to see some different areas, that summer ball job down in Fayetteville, North Carolina, then up to Erie, Pennsylvania um, at Allegheny, working with the catchers there. I had a head coach who gave me free reign to really do whatever I wanted, which I was super grateful for. Then came back closer to home at Fairleigh Dickinson in neck learned a, a ton there from a really, really great coaching staff as well before heading down to Roanoke for a two uh, two years where I could kind of like be the hitting coach for the first time. And the biggest thing about that was it's nerve wracking, you know, when you're in those shoes and guys are actually looking at you as more, more than just like a defensive position coach. Um, and they're like, Oh my gosh, like now I'm running this whole group, it's not just my four or five catchers. It's like a whole offense that I need to figure out how to, how to operate. But that, again, just another new part of the country, another really cool experience, you know, worked for a, a first time head coach who, again, like gave me the agency to do a lot of different things, test and then retest when things didn't go right, which, you know, were, were, was great for learning. Snuck in a trip back to FDU for a couple months um, when I thought I was going to get my master's before. M called me home where I kind of got to really get hands on with recruiting. You know, having the title recruiting coordinator now is great, but it truly is one of my favorite parts of the job. So, again, just, you know, working with the catchers, working with the hitters, and um, doing a, a large amount of the recruiting for the program along with our head coach and a couple of assistant coaches as well. Um, you know, I've been super fortunate to work with a lot of really great people.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you've had quite the stops. You know, you've you've definitely yeah. hit a bunch bunch of places along the way to get to where you are. And you had mentioned Dave Anderson. He was the assistant coach who recruited me to Muhlenberg. He was one who had came, come out to watch me pitch. And it just shows that the position of assistant coach is so important because that is the guy who's really hands-on with each individual group. It's the guy who has his hand on the pitchers, the entire staff, or like you're saying, an entire offense. So the fact that FNM has a guy like you who really has his hands on what's going on there is, is pretty cool um, for them and pretty cool for you I'm sure to take it back to Muhlenberg right I remember when we were there we did not have much access to technology right we didn't have a Trackman or a Rapsodo or any kind of data it was it was really more the coaches just giving their input on like an eye test right so for you how has the utilization of data in college baseball grown from when we were at Muhlenberg and you were a player to now where you are at F&M?
2: yeah and it's you're hundred percent right. I bet if people were to take a step back and look, you know, at the program at the time, it really like fits the the mold of what, you know, the assumed division three program is it's not the most glamorous facilities. It's not the most glamorous technology or equipment or anything like that, but things have, you know, things have really changed across the board. And I think it really does vary, you know, program to program in terms of, you know, the support and what they're able to kind of go out because a lot of this stuff, the biggest hurdle is always going to be financial, but it definitely has changed. And I think these past few years, especially during COVID when, P- when coaches from what I could see could really like take a step back and not that they didn't have to worry about a season going on, but it was really just a time where like for me um, and for a lot of others that I know, because there were no games, it was like, let's try and learn as much as we can about a lot of different things. So I feel like it led a lot of coaches who might've been like caught up and, you know, in the day to day of like preparing for a season or just coming off of a fall and managing different aspects of what coaches need to deal with uh, at the college level on campus, you know, they were they were able to kind of just take a step back and learn way more about different te- tools, different technologies that they could kind of implement into their own, own programs. And now I definitely think there's a way higher spike in, you know, the actual physical tools, but also just data that a program is able to use on a daily basis.
1: And how do you find that people are starting to use data more in the world of college recruiting? Maybe what are some of the metrics that you're looking for when you're recruiting a player and I'm sure that's different with hitters and pitchers so if you could talk a little bit about both of those
2: yeah I think that one thing and again me I've been doing this this will be my fifth year I I think the biggest thing in the beginning was that like the players weren't as interested in knowing what the metrics were um so you know you would go to a recruiting event you would go to a showcase And sure, you know, a few kids might ask, like, what was my 60 time or, you know, something like how hard was a pitcher throwing? But outside of those couple of things, it wasn't necessarily like as sought after. But now, now that players are aware that coaches are using these tools, they want like they want to go to showcases. They want to go to camps. They want to, you know, go to different exposure activities where these, you know, that are using these types of technologies so that they can email a coach who might not have been there and say hey this is actual tangible data this isn't just somebody saying like hey i know this kid is really good um or you know a high school coach saying uh hey you know i don't i don't have a connection with a college coach but this is why you should take this player it's cold hard facts of you know this is what makes me a good player this is what makes me the player i am from like a, a pitcher to hitter standpoint it really runs across you know, it, it's, again, it's another situation where it's program to program. Some programs use data a ton to recruit. I've seen coaches at their own camps who, when they see a hitter that they like and, you know, passes the quote unquote eye test, they'll have them throw a blast sensor on for uh, a round of batting practice. Or, you know, if they have multiple mounds going of pitchers and one kid looks like he's really thrown well, but they only have one portable track man, they'll pull that kid to go throw on another mound. So it's, You know, it's a lot and it can be really overwhelming for for both sides, the player and the coaches, you know, to make sure you're either receiving or being able to give all of that data. But you're you're 100% right in the fact that it varies so much from program to program, you know, in terms of what they do use and, you know, how important it is to their specific recruiting process.
0: So piggybacking off of what you had just mentioned with the showcases, right? So you might have a guy, like you're saying, someone stands out and you can throw a blast motion sensor on their bat for one round of BP or one pitcher stands out. So you throw them on the track, man. But in general, you don't get that much data on each guy. So how do you weigh the data that you get with like the eye test, right? If you're watching a guy and he looks really great, And his data doesn't match up, or vice versa. Does that situation ever happen for you guys?
2: It definitely happens. What we do, we always want to make sure that we're seeing the players live as much as we can um, and not just going solely off the data because, you know, there are times where if you're getting exit velos, it's done off of the tier, it's done off of front flips, and it's, you know, uh, a 15 foot toss that a lot of hitters who might have a you know plenty of problems in their swing are able to hit really hard. Or, you know, obviously the biggest one is pitching, of course, where a guy's lighting up the radar gun and maybe spins the ball really well. But if you're just getting an email that says, hey, I topped out at 90 and here are my spin rates, my uh, breaking pitches moved this much, my changeup moved this much. But, you know, you don't have the – like I guess the eye test, it still is data, but like the eye test data of like, was it in the zone? How many strikes did he throw? How many guys did he walk? You know, you really—it's that's what kind of makes like both necessary. But yeah, it it certainly does happen, and it's a reason why I know like myself and plenty of others who I talk to as much as I can about recruiting really make it a point to not just you know see a kid throw a 15 pin pen pitch live. And then say, "All right, like well, I've got, I've got enough. We're good to go." You know, sometimes you have to because of maybe where a certain player lives, or you know, where the school location is, and certain um, you know boundaries like that. But uh, for the most part, you know, it's it's really that's why it's important to pair this
1: for sure. And so, specifically for catchers, you obviously know that catcher is a position with a lot of intangibles, a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily show up in. A showcase or even in a mock game during a showcase so for you when you're recruiting catchers how do you go about assessing those kind of intangibles about how a catcher manages a staff keeps his pitchers comfortable even calling a game which is usually not something you can get a great feel for during a showcase because the catchers and pitchers have obviously just met each other for the most part so how do you go about looking into that stuff
2: i can say that i've Tried to make it a point to have conversations with catchers, um, and one, it's you know, it's like you're kind of alluding to. It is a little bit more natural. I want to know if there's reason for you know calling the pitches like that they are calling, like you were saying, um, or try to come up with ways that uh, that just put a number in some way to what they're doing. So um, we, I, you know, with the catchers that I work with at FNM and what I've done with the other stops that I've been at is we actually have a system, you know, we don't have some of the tools that can actually like measure where players are moving on the field or even like camera angles from center field to see how well a catcher is framing different parts of the zone. So, you know, we tried to get creative and come up with different methods, I guess, to really like track how good is a kid at framing? How good is uh, a kid at blocking? And, you know, are they blocking certain areas better than others? Are they framing certain areas than others? I think that, you know, the the sexy, um, the sexy metric when it comes to catching is obviously going to be pop time. And even just arm strength down to the bases, you know, it, it definitely does go well beyond that. And um, I do want to see, like, when I'm talking to this kid who's a catcher, can I see them working well with my pitching staff? Like, I know the guys who are pitching. I might not work with them, you know, and develop them as pitchers but um, I'm familiar with how some of our senior leaders or how some of our you know, leaders in general communicate with them during their outings or even just in between innings. So you try and pick up on stuff like that just because it is the one position where communication can really benefit you know, a team or a program. So you, you, know, you definitely want to make sure that's there. And depending on what type of program that it is, again, some um, don't value defense at all. Some want just a kid who's going to go back there and hit and you see you know you see that as high as the pro level two in some organizations so yeah like i i do feel like a broken record but i think at the end of the day kind of gives different player types a little bit more like hope knowing just because i don't fit the standards for one program just because i'm not the type of catcher that one program would bring in doesn't mean that i don't have a chance to play college baseball or just play baseball as long as i can um because there are plenty of you know different programs value different things uh, and especially with the catching position, there's a ton of the, you know, baseball IQ stuff, if you will, that that will go into that.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that different programs just have different requirements. I remember when I was showcasing in high school, I was at a showcase and was speaking to the coach from Yale and he took one look at me and he said, Listen, I'm sorry, kid. We don't recruit catchers over six feet. So go talk to a different coach.
2: And the thing is, like it's it's typically not because it's like there's just someone who's stubborn and, you know, has this one rule in their head. It's like, that's that, whatever the, the stipulation is. It's probably worked for that coach somewhere along the line where, um, you know, they're able to trust it because, he, you know, we mentioned it uh, a little while ago, like what are some of the, the metrics that we particularly um, hit on or really try to play, pay close attention to. The reason that any coaching staff does that at the end of the day is just because that's been a metric that they've been able to trust in the past. You know, maybe it's something that the more successful guys in their own program have done. Maybe it's something that they're able to see in pro ball or, you know, the higher levels of college baseball and say successful players do this. So that's what I want to try and shoot for in my program or with the players that I work with, If you know, someone in a facility or something. So, you know, it's it's so much like testing, seeing how it plays out in a game setting, then going back to retest that, you know, you start to build systems that you can hopefully recruit based off of. So in this scenario, it's like, what metrics do I look for out of the successful players in my program that, oh, these these guys who I just saw in an event might have a little bit of a head start because they're already showing some advanced metrics in those, in you know, whatever it might be.
1: Yeah. There's definitely a trade-off there um, with some of those things. Going back to a trade-off that you mentioned before about valuing, Offensive catchers versus defensive catchers is obviously something we see from high school ball, probably not as much, but definitely college ball and into the pros as well. How do you personally evaluate a catcher who's really good offensively, but maybe somewhat of a liability on defense versus a guy who receives the ball really well, blocks the ball really well, great pop time, but maybe is just hovering right around the Mendoza line. Yeah, it's
2: it's so difficult because like as a hitting coach, I never want to say, well, I'm just going to punt on this at, bat." like I, there's a guy in the lineup who I know is, it's just unlikely. Like we never want to put ourselves in a situation where a lineup you're putting together has
1: an automatic
2: out in it. So it's so hard to just be like, well, this kid does everything right defensively, or a kid does everything right defensively, but just doesn't bring anything offensively to the table or vice versa. Because again, with the amount that a, uh, that a good base running team can expose a poor defensive catcher, it's going to win and lose games. So, you know, with that, it's, to me, it's not a problem if a guy isn't a power hitter or if a guy you know, doesn't have the strongest arm, but can you like with the skill sets that a guy has, can you still play competitively at that level? And to me that really means like, do you have a tool offensively that you can use? If you're not, you know, a if you're not a guy who's going to hit, you know, double digit extra bases as a you know division three college player in a 40 game season, are you going to have a high on base percentage and be a menace on the bases? Or you know vice versa if you're a guy that's super high swing and miss and you know you might not be able to execute as well with runners in scoring position or you know in spots where you need to keep the keep the lineup moving, are you going to be able to go out and play really sound defense um and frame the you know frame the ball well if you don't have the strongest arm, can you at least keep the ball in front of you so that guys aren't taking extra bases on pitches in the dirt? to me, it's never a matter of like well would you sacrifice offense totally for great defense or great defense totally for you know offense it's a matter of like does a player is a player well rounded enough to you know even though they might have a flaw offensively or defensively to be you know competitive or above the competitive level enough in on you know in other areas of the position
1: totally makes sense i think at the end of the day you're not going to get away at the college level with a five-star glove or bat and two stars the other way if I had to pigeonhole you into one answer, would you rather have a guy, a catcher who is a five-star glove and a four-star bat or five-star bat and a four-star glove? I
2: can take the, you know, I can approach the hard question. Um, I I know that I kind of copped out by saying like, you obviously want the well-rounded player, which is a hundred percent true. But um, I think me personally, I, I would rather the really good defensive catcher um, because of the value that I truly think it brings to the pitching staff. We talk a lot about with our catchers, um, you know, our, our, catching core, just, you know, making them aware of the the differences of like being able to steal a strike and what truly is the difference between a one, one count and it going two one versus one, two. Um, and just some of the offensive numbers that correlate to, uh, you know, the quote unquote average hitter, you know, a lot of the information we get is like from the pro level. So it, it does vary and it's not a hundred percent accurate, but they can still get the point that there's a hundred, a uh, hundred point batting average swing, and even a little bit higher on base percentage swing when a catcher is able to really have a high impact on, you know, stealing strikes, or just keeping strike strikes. So I think because of, it's, it's obviously, like, defensive, but it's not the same way that an outfield, like, it's not the same defensive comparison of an outfielder who can track down a ball in the outfield. It's literally helping take the bat out of the opponent's hand. So, you're playing good defense by maybe, you know, having the arm to throw runners out or keep guys at certain bases, and you're actively, like, limiting the opposing offense. That probably sounds like philosophic in some way or something, but, um, or maybe it's just me like slightly being biased and overvaluing the catching position. But that's, that's why I would say to me, a defensive catcher would, uh, would slightly, you know, have it. But I, I know I'm rambling on about this, but the last thing I'll say about it is I think that it also depends on what type of catchers you have coming into your program or leaving your program too. Because if you have two guys who can really swing it well, then maybe you can afford to get a guy who, you know, their first couple of years might just be a defensive replacement before really establishing a role later on. That's kind of, you know, at the college level, we're not necessarily playing for one year. It's not just like, let's go get a bunch of guys, and then they all reach free agency. It's, you know, you're able to kind of build towards something each and every year. So you you can kind of play around with that, if you will, um, depending on the circumstances.
0: So from a pitcher's perspective, I personally agree with your bias in terms of leaning towards the defensive side of catching. And I think that for me and for our staff at Muhlenberg or even in in high school, the intangibles that came with having a good catcher who was able to, like you're saying, steal strikes, be an automatic wall in terms of blocking balls, just commanding the staff, making sure everyone was able to throw their bullpens it it could even be so much as like in the middle of a game you coming up to me and saying we got a lefty coming up and that we're going to flip a curveball here and just staying on top of that staff i think those intangible characteristics with a guy who's a defensive leader makes a pitching staff's job 10 times easier so i agree with you if we're going to play the this or that for pitchers on the recruiting side if you had to choose between two guys one throwing a little harder than the other, let's call it one guy's at 90 and one guy's at 85, but the guy with 85 has significantly better metrics on his fastball, let's say, which one is a guy that you would prefer to have in your staff?
2: That's a great question. Um, I, again, if I, if it was like the scenario, like we're talking about, if you have to absolutely choose one, I would, you know, when all things were equal when it comes to, uh, you know, like, in the zone, out of the zone, I'm probably going to choose the harder thrower. Now, I know, like, trust me, there are plenty of guys who, you know, who I've seen that are just, like, super power arms that are flat and get hit around. And then there are, like, even at our level, like, there are guys who legitimately throw, like, high 70s, low 80s that can have really good days because of how the ball moves. Um, But I just think, like, when you're on social media and, you know, it watching and everything like those are the names that will kind of get attention. Like everybody will point and be like, see, you don't have to throw hard to be good. You can throw whatever and, you know, still get out. And that's true. You absolutely can. But if you look at, you know, certain data, I would say what I have personally seen is that the harder you throw, it's going, you know, you're going to be more of a problem, especially if you, you know, assuming both guys have the similar type of like secondary stuff um, and whatnot, it's harder to hit some power pitching, uh, especially, you know, where, you know, at our, at our level where we're not seeing 90 guys, every single, or like 90 velocity arms every single game. So again, there's, uh, there are, there's way more, and we all know that there's way more that goes into it, but I'm never going to turn down velocity. And hopefully, I mean, to me, the right answer is we take multiple pitchers a year. We'll take both. Uh, There's a 90 arm and, you know, a guy who's running the ball like crazy all over the zone that might not be throwing as hard perfect you know bring them bring them both um, exactly
0: so the question that I thought of just now based off of your answer is do you feel like or what would your pitching coach say is more trainable velocity or stuff would he does he feel like he could take a guy who's throwing 85 and easily help him throw 90 or would he rather the guy throw 90 because he thinks he he could develop an arsenal way easier
2: that's exactly the point at least at our level where we are not just the truth of the matter is like at the division three level coaches are not allowed to be with the players as frequently as possible so or as frequently as as, you know division one division two fortunately i've never really been with a program of guys who have just like from the pitching side who have just like put the ball down and been like i'm not touching it until practice number one of the, the upcoming season but that's a great question. It's probably a question that I need to ask him and like start, you know, talking about it uh, with him. But um, I, you know, it's with the with some of the limited, you know, exposure that we're allowed to have with our players just based on NCAA rules. I would say it's I, or I would think it's probably going to be a better scenario uh, for our sake to develop some of the, uh, some of the movement on pitches and pitch ability rather than be able to supervise a kid as they're going through an 11 month throwing progression. That's building up arm strength
0: for sure. And you mentioned the discrepancy between D1, D2, D3, you touched on it a little bit before, but are there any noticeable discrepancies in terms of how much data is being used to recruit and develop guys between the different levels of D1, D2, D3?
2: Yes, but simply because of the access that different programs, you know, have the ability to, uh, to use, you know, we like schools, a lot of schools, in the division three level don't have the budget that power five schools do to utilize certain things like, you know, certain, whether it's like actual pieces of technology, like TrackMan, man, Soto blast Hawkeye, whatever it might be. Again, I've been to certain, like, program camps where they have that on the scoreboard the entire time, and they're able – they're like – they have managers and coaches writing that information down, whereas it's very different at at some other programs. I think every coach, at least that I've worked with and and learned from or or just, you know, been around at recruiting – I've never seen a coach be like I don't want to know what the kids like. I don't want to know what's you know, I don't want to know how much the ball's moving. I'm only going to use my eyes and my eyes solely. I've never really been able to say like, Oh, well, that's a, that's something that only a division three or division two or division one coach would say. But, you know, I would just say that naturally division one has the uh, you know, has, has the greatest ability and the greatest access to certain data points that, you know, some other programs might not, but, I, like I said, I don't think um, coaches being in favor or against data necessarily like ingrained itself at a certain level. Um, I think it's just a, a matter of personal preference at that point because, trust, like I said, you know, for the most part, as in all things in life, you know, there's the majority of people kind of sit in the middle. They want to use the eye test and they want to use certain data points that they trust. And then the loudest are kind of the two extremes that are saying, I don't want to use anything just like, let me watch eight pitches of batting practice thrown overhand from 35 feet. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the other extreme being like, I want a machine throwing from 60 feet, six inches an 82 mile an hour fastball with this much run. And I'm going to only look at the iPad to see what the ref Soto information is of the ball imply. Those two types of people might be talked about a lot, but uh, it's definitely not the, the majority of coaches out there.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting to me when college guys come back from D1 programs and D3 programs, and they're all training together, but some guys are super reliant on the data because they have all that stuff accessible to them. And some guys are like, I don't really care. Like, I'm just going to get my throne in and move on, you know? Um, so to tie everything up, um, do you have any last message for our listeners in terms of some things that they should focus on when they're going to showcases, when they're presenting themselves in front of college coaches, like any last message for guys on how to be more recruitable?
2: The one and it's you know the one component that we didn't necessarily talk about today, but sh- really should be taken care of before you put yourself in a situation to be recruited is the strength and conditioning side. I think just what I'm—I don't want to speak for other coaches by saying like what we're seeing, but what I'm personally seeing is mechanically, guys are really sound. Like you don't the kids who or the the players, the college players that have like the swings that aren't the smoothest they're not you know there's not a lot of them in every lineup where I feel like going back to when we were playing or even a little bit before that there was more of that and you know they just found kind of like found a way to get it done but now what I'm seeing at least at a lot of different showcase events and whatnot is players who come and their movements are really clean you know there's not a lot of hiccups in their swing or or their delivery as a pitcher. But they're not strong enough to actually play the game on a 60 90 field at a highly competitive level. They're hitting a ton of line drives, but if those line drives are going to the shortstop or, you know, not clearing an infielder's head, it's going to be really difficult. And I think that I personally, when, you know, if I can look out at a a field of um, on a showcase and see like physical kids who I, you know, who I know are probably working with, like, a personal hitting coach or a personal throwing coach, and then I can get my hands on as a part of a college program and, you know, work with them. And that's going to be way more appealing than a kid who is, quote, unquote, maybe, like, reached their ceiling uh, because their body isn't strong enough to hit a ball in the gap. Their body isn't strong enough to throw 85. Guys need to be strong. They need to be fast. They need to move fast to be able to, you know, see some success and, and, you know, have some type of power not like home run power but just like run the bases you need to be powerful to swing the bat hard you need to be powerful i guess if there's one parting word of wisdom it would definitely be the best thing that a kid can do before they go and showcase is make sure that they're physically conditioned to you know perform at a high level when they're playing the game
0: yeah so Although we have to tie it up here, I could probably sit and talk baseball with you for hours. I mean, the knowledge and passion that comes from you is so apparent to me, and I'm super thankful that our listeners have a chance to kind of hear from you and that Mark and I have a chance to chat with you. It's super cool for me because I remember even back in college, you would always joke, oh, I'm going to be an umpire. Like, I'm going to try and stay you know, in the game of baseball forever. So it's cool that now, you know, a bunch of years down the line, you and I both are still in the game of baseball, trying to impact it in a positive way. So, you know, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight and your wisdom with everyone.
2: Yeah. Thank you again. I, I appreciate uh, all the kind words throughout the, the pod and uh, yeah, I guess we'll just have to do it again to, to tie a knot on all, uh, all those conversations. But uh, yeah, that's, I, that's funny you brought up umpirings. um what oh, yeah glad we're still in the game i'm glad i'm, <laughs> I'm honestly way more glad that i'm coaching and working in that capacity uh than getting yelled at by coaches but um but good stuff yeah i can't wait to do it again
0: i hear you all right well you heard it heard it here first matt rebusel podcast part two coming soon all right so thanks for tuning in and we will catch you next time on the next episode of the sweet spot podcast